Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you for this chance to gather, to celebrate your, your glory, celebrate how worthy you are of praise and, and honor, to celebrate your plan for redemption for um, people who may not deserve it, yet you love and that you pour your grace and your mercy out on. Jesus, we thank you. God, we're going to be a text today where you just talk so clearly about who you are and what you've done for us. And so I pray that you'd help us to celebrate that well, to take that seriously, to walk through that t- today together and for it to draw us into your glory, for it to draw us into worship and that it would change us and mold us and shape us into who you would have us to be. And so that we might be prepared to go out and share with others your goodness, your glory, your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, that was fantastic. I'm glad we did it that way. We had a couple families that um, took a little longer than some of us took, and that's exactly why we wanted to do this. We wanted to give the families an opportunity to take as long as they needed to, because as um, I think Jessica or Kayla said this other day, our His Kids director, um, still for us, one of the most lost places in our church is our our children. I don't know if we think of it that right, but they don't really know Jesus quite yet. We're, we're guiding them there. We're leading them there. Through, through us, they get to know him, but what a beautiful thing to get to walk through communion with our, our, with our children and explain it to them along the way. Um, just another, another way to share the gospel with them. So I'm thankful that you guys were patient with us today and allowed us to do that. And we want to take as much time on the Sundays that we do communion for families to walk through that together, because that's a beautiful thing. All right, so you guys ready? To jump in? Okay. So I don't know if you've heard of this team, but there was, there was once a team and it was really made up. It was a team that was made up of like the most unlikely people. It was, it was misfits really. And they were, they were brought together. They kind of came together to accomplish more than they ever could have accomplished alone, more than anyone thought they could accomplish. A team that in the end ended up inspiring millions of people because, because they accomplished the impossible basically. It was a team that also spawned entirely too many Mohawks in a decade when the haircuts were just questionable in the first place. Does anybody know what this team is? It's a team led by Colonel Hannibal Smith. And Colonel Hannibal Smith once said, I love it when a plan comes together. I love it when a plan comes together. What what team is that? The A-team, right? The A-team, the A-team that accomplished the impossible. And so here we, here we, here we go in a text, and here's, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to make light of the text that we're going to be in today, right? It, it may be one of, the mo- one of the single most serious things we can talk about, but here's the thing. It's also amazing. It, it, it's astounding. The story we're about to jump into is like a, a, astounding. Unlike the A-team, which was a band of misfits, this is God accomplishing impossible things for a band of misfits, for, a, for, a huma- for humanity, a bunch of misfits accomplishing the impossible on our behalf. So yes, the story is weighty today and it's serious and we're going to take it serious and we're going to feel that weight and it is sad, but it's also amazing. It's also joy producing. Like what we're going to talk to about it, say, as we feel the weight and the, the kind of the horror of it, I also want us to walk out of here feeling joy, feeling happy about what God has accomplished on our behalf. Because that's what we're going to see today. We're going to get to see in so many ways the completion of so many of God's promises and just sit back and watch his glorious plan come together. And listen, it's awesome. It's awesome. I was actually really sad that my daughter popped up with a fever like 
20 minutes before we left for church because I told her, I want, to, I want you to hear today just how awesome our God is today specifically. And so even for your kids, when we get to the parts of the prophecies, make sure you, even your kids are paying attention because they can follow today and it can even blow their minds if I'm not overselling it. So if you haven't been with us, just a very quick recap. We've been walking verse by verse through the gospel of John. And where we were landed today is what we talked about in communion. Jesus um, has had his last supper with his disciples where he talked about the bread and he talked about the wine. He's, he's been betrayed, he's been arrested, he's been to, sent to the cross, and he's been crucified. And so last week we saw Jesus carry his own cross to the hill of Calvary, to Golgotha. We saw him be hung between two criminals, and we saw how the religious leaders mocked him and humiliated him. We also saw these same religious leaders get really angry because the Romans had this tradition of hanging a sign above the cross to portray what this criminal's offense was. And above Jesus, it didn't say this man claims to be the king of the Jews. His crime was that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so they were angry that it said that because it was written in three different languages and everybody got to come by and see that Jesus's crime was for being the king of the Jews. Kind of, kind of awesome. And then lastly, we saw the executioners divide up his clothing and cast lots for his tunic. And remember that, because that's going to factor in again today. And just as an Old Testament prophecy, prophecy 700 years before predicted that they were going to divide his clothing, another one a thousand years before. And then finally, we saw John, or Jesus, as he was dying, look to John and say, John, this is now your mother. He pointed to his own mother, Jesus' his own mother. He pointed to his mother, Mary, said, John, this is now your mother. And mom, this is now your son. So he made sure that his mom was taken care of before he left this earth. That's where we're going to pick it up today. In the last moments of Jesus' life before his death, read with me in John chapter 19. We're going to pick it up in John chapter 19, verse 28. I'll make sure we're all there. John chapter 19, verse 28. This is what it says. After this, after the things we just talked about, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Let's stop there for just a second. So a man, Jesus, who's been whipped, terribly whipped, carried his own cross while bleeding all over the place, and now has been hung on a cross, nailed to a cross in the Middle Eastern sun, would have been desperately dehydrated. In fact, I read something that said thirst was more, like, mo, mo, more than likely a part of the torture, right? They knew how desperately dehydrated it would be. They knew how thirsty they would be. And so here, and here is not only the last moments of, of Christ's life playing out, but I don't know if you picked up on this. We're going to see it here in a second. This is God revealing his sovereign plan to us. Jesus just said, I thirst. So they gave him sour wine with gall. If it might say gall in yours, it's probably sour wine mixed with vinegar to drink. But again, um, this wasn't meant to be a mercy to people who were dehydrated on the cross. This was meant to keep them alive a little bit longer. They didn't give him water. They gave him sour wine mixed with vinegar, which would have been terrible. They gave him just a little bit, enough to keep them alive a little longer because that was the point. The, the Romans designed this so they would hang on the cross and suffer as long as possible. 
Remember what I said last week, sometimes they put a little seat on the cross so they could push up a little bit easier. They put that seat there so they could push up a little bit easier, not as a mercy, but so that they would hang there longer because you had to push up to breathe. So sometimes they put a tiny little seat so they could push up just a little bit better. So sometimes they would hang on the cross for days. And they wanted him to hang there for days because people would see that and be intimidated and scared of Rome and not betray them. That's what this was. That's what the cross is. As much suffering as long as possible. But even in this moment with this wine, this small moment of Jesus being thirsty is ordained by God. That's why John says, Jesus, knowing now that all is finished, and so that scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. So what scripture is being fulfilled? It's probably Psalm 69, 19 through 21. Do we have that? Dude, you're just on it. I didn't even ask for it. It's there. Thanks, Robert. Psalm 69, 19 through 21 says this. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. John is saying a prophecy like this one is about the Messiah, the suffering servant who would, who would become our shame, who would become our dishonor, who, was, who would become our reproach on the cross. And so in the midst of his abandonment, he was given sour wine to drink. And this passage about the suffering servant, again, was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born, that the suffering servant would be given sour wine to drink. Now, here's the thing that might melt your mind a little bit. Um, it might melt your mind. Did Jesus, who knows all of Scripture because he is God, he's a man, but he's also fully God, right? So Jesus, who knows all of Scripture, did he say, and did he say, I thirst, knowing they would give him sour wine in this moment to fulfill this Scripture, or... Jesus, who is God and who clearly, John clearly says was with God, did he, did he have a prophet prophesy this a thousand years before because he, he knew in a thousand years from now he would be on the cross and be thirsty and ask and say, I thirst, and they give him sour wine. So which was it? Did he know it was going to come or did Jesus say it in this moment to fulfill the prophecy? Yes. This is where this starts to blow your mind is Jesus is fully man and fully God. Like, which, which one was it? Because Jesus probably made the prophecy, right, of a thousand years before because he knew because God is not going through time with us. God is above time. He's not looking into the future. God is already in the future because to him there is no future and past. There's just everything, and he knows all, and he sees all, and that's why it makes these prophecies amazing because this is a tiny little detail. This is a tiny little detail, but these little details matter to God and they matter to us because why in the world would you put this prophecy in there unless you were trying to show this is exactly what's going to happen. So we're going to see this more fully by the time we finish our passage today. But God, through John, wants us to see very clearly that every part of this, every moment, including Jesus being thirsty, was a part of God's sovereign plan, was ordained by him. And that plan really comes together, all of those prophecies, all of those promises come together in verse 30. Read chapter 19, verse 30 with me. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Maybe some of the most famous words that Jesus ever said 
And if we understand them, maybe some of the most comforting words in the Bible. It's a terrible moment. But if we understand these words, it's one of the most comforting moments in the Bible. It says that Jesus cried out, it is finished, and then he gave up his spirit. Those are important words. That's not an accident the way that John said that. In John 10, verse 17 through 18, it says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He's talking about his resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So although they've been trying to kill Jesus for a very long time now, although they've arrested him and they've put him on a cross, as it said in other gospels, he could have called down the angels. He could have stopped this at any time. No one is taking his life. He went there willingly, joyfully. And when the time comes, they didn't actually kill him. He gave up his life. He gave up his spirit because he had the authority to do so because the father gave it to him. The father gave it to him. He willingly gave up his life in complete and total obedience to his father and his plan. So now for this phrase, it is finished. You know, in the original Greek, it's one word. It's not a, it's not a phrase, it's one word. It is finished is one word. And it doesn't mean just that things are done, but it means things are fulfilled. That things are accomplished. It's about completing what you were meant to do. That's what, that's what it carries with it. Paul uses the same word in 2 Timothy 4, 7, when he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul's not just talking about being done. He's just like done being Christian. He's done with his life. He's talking about, I fulfilled the mission that God gave me. When Jesus Christ came down to Paul and said, this is what you're going to do, Paul said, I have done that. I have kept the faith. I have done what Jesus Christ called me to do. That's the weight of this phrase, it is finished. That's what it's carrying. So the question comes, and I think, we, I think we know the answer, but the question comes, what task did Jesus finish? What did he accomplish? What did he accomplish? Well, we don't have to guess because Jesus already told us what he was accomplishing, what he was going to accomplish. Flip back to John 17 really quickly. Flip back to John 17. We're going to be in verse 1. If you remember, John 17 is the high, what we call the high priestly prayer. It was Jesus' basically last prayer that we have recorded, um, or one of the last prayers that we have recorded that Jesus prayed to his father, and he talked about what he was about to do, and then he prayed over his disciples, and he prayed over his church, right? But this is how this prayer started in John 17, 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. And as a reminder, when Jesus says the hour, he's talking about his death. He's talking about what he'll accomplish on the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I, have, that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' work on earth was to glorify the Father, and that's exactly what he has done, and that's exactly what he's doing in this moment when he says it is finished. By, by displaying to us 
and teaching us about who the Father is, right? We don't have to wonder what God is like. As I've said before, people talk about, I say this all the time, but people say, well, we can't really know God. He's God and he's mysterious. He is God and he is mysterious, but he also very much wants to be known. He sent his son so that we could actually know what God is like personally, relationally, what kind, what kind of God he really is. And so Jesus came to show us what God was like to glorify the Father in that way. And then he ultimately gave that life in perfect obedience to the Father in the ultimate display of glory to his Father, the redemption of the world. So what he said, I came to give them eternal life. Like you told me, you told me I'm coming to give them eternal life to glorify you, Father. That's where we get John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son and will glorify his son in order that the world might be saved through his son. Listen, it brings God glory to see our guilt traded for Christ's innocence. That brings God glory because we don't deserve it and the world knows we don't deserve it and the world knows what some of us have done. If the world knew what was in our heart, it brings God glory to know that we have no hope and see our guilt traded for innocence, our rebellion traded for his perfect obedience, our evil for his holiness, our depravity for his righteousness. That brings God glory. It's as Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus, he, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. You want to see the glory of God? Look to Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection is the radiance of God's glory. Listen, since the fall in Genesis 3, we have been under the curse of sin and death and hell. That's the story of the Bible, really. Like, like, like we've been under this curse, but God promised a son We talked about that a few weeks ago. He promised a son, a son that would one day come and destroy the power of that enemy. With the cross of Jesus Christ, where he, as as we just talked about, where he gave his blood to wash us clean, Jesus can truly now say, it is finished. He defeated the curse. That's what he accomplished. That's what he's finished. He defeated the curse, listen, by becoming a curse. He went through hell to conquer the power of hell. He became our sin so that he might overcome our sin. He gave himself up to death so that he might destroy the fear of death. He displayed God's glory to the world through this, and now it is finished. As we talk about so often, church, we try so often, I, I, again and again, I see it. I know I say this before, but I see it over and over. We try to carry the burden of these things. The fear of death, the fear of hell, the weight of sin, the fear of our sin, the, ens- the enslavement of our sin. We carry the burden of these things. We carry the weight of all of these things. But Jesus paid for all of these things with his dying breath. He's trying to tell you, listen, all of that, it's finished. I conquered these things for you. I I defeated these things for you. Stop trying to win the battle on your own against these things that you can't win, but accept that I beat them. So accept the truth, accept the freedom, accept the hope and the power that comes with knowing that victory has already been won. Have you ever heard me say something like that before? 
Church, I'm going to say it a thousand more times because I see it over and over and over and over again. I know it's in my heart sometimes. I have to be reminded over and over again. But it seems like every time I walk through a marriage, I walk with, with marriage with people who are struggling, I walk through discipleship with someone, I talk with someone, this is what it always comes down to. We don't trust in the victory. Listen, yes, we need to strive for holiness. Yes, we need to flee from sin. Yes, we need to take those things seriously. Take those things seriously. Strive to to not walk in those things. But most of the ways that we strive is just trying to be better. I need to stop doing this. You do need to stop doing this. But how's that going for you when under your own power, you're just trying really hard to stop? How's it go? You try your best and then you fail again and you're devastated, right? Shame and guilt becomes overwhelming because you're like, I've tried so hard. Maybe this is just who I am. Maybe this is the thing that I am. Maybe I'm just a, pe- a person that's just, and maybe fear is just who I am or, or, or anxiety is just who I am or lust is just who I am or greed is just who I am. You start to believe those lies because you roll in them for so long and they become such a part of you. You don't know how to live without them. Victory has already been won. This is a complete mind shift, church. It doesn't mean you're never going to struggle with sin. It means when you do sin, you're not thinking of, man, I've got to be better. It's that Christ was better for me. He's already set me free from this. I need to believe in that and walk in the power of that and walk out of this and away from this. Walk away from the shame. Not try to work your way through the shame until one day you finally feel better about it all. I'm going to walk away from the shame because Jesus already became that shame. He became that guilt so that I might strive towards something better, something good. I might strive towards freedom. Man, I got to move on, but this is the thing, church. There's lots of things in our lives, but this is the thing that enslaves most of us. Victory for us deep down is I need to be better. Not that Christ was already better for me. He already won it for me. I just need to believe that and move forward and accept his goodness over me. And even though Jesus has finished the work the Father gave him to do and he has glorified him with his life and his death, still he's not done displaying the glorious plan of the Father. Keep reading in verse 31. John 19 Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. It's the Sabbath of the Passover. It's a very important day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Blood and water. It's Friday that Jesus is crucified. That's why we celebrate, remember, Good Friday, right? Before Easter. It's Friday afternoon. And sundown, at sundown on Friday is when the Sabbath started for the Jews. Sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And so, according to the Mishnah, I'm not going to get into it, but the Mishnah was something that was written by the Jews. That wasn't the Bible, but they looked at it very seriously. That it was, it was a curse to leave someone hanging on a tree like this. But, but more importantly, it's, it's the Passover, 
right? It's the Sabbath of the Passover. They don't want to deal with this. They want to move on from this. This is why they've been trying to rush this this whole time. They, they, they want to move on so they can celebrate the Passover. They don't want this to be overshadowing the Passover celebration. Because as we've already discussed, sometimes people were left on the cross for days. And many times then they were left on the cross for days or weeks to rot so that Rome could make their point. And again, it, for the most part, it worked. But that's not what they want here. Considering it's a special Sabbath, this, the high day of the Passover, the Jews ask that their legs be broken to speed along the process of their deaths. I want us to think about how cruel this is for a second. Like th- this is asked by, by the religious, the Jewish religious leaders. They want them to break the prisoners' legs. Now this was a common practice by Rome, so it wasn't out of nowhere that they're asking them to break their legs. They're, but they're, and they're, the reason they're asking makes sense. They, they want to speed this process along for the, the Sabbath and the Passover. But for a second, can we just imagine the additional agony? I don't, want to, I don't want to harp on this too long, but remember the only way they could breathe is by like pulling up, by pushing up a little bit to take a breath because as they hung there and their lungs filled with fluid, they couldn't breathe. Most people died as asphyxiation. They suffocated to death because they couldn't get a breath. So they break their legs so they can't put pull up and take a breath. Now, can you imagine if your legs were just shattered while you're on the cross already? How painful that would be. But your body's not going to allow you just to sit, for most people, just hang there and die. So you're still going to try to push up on those legs that have now been broken after you're exhausted and dehydrated and lost blood and your body's in shock and your mind's in shock, still trying to push up on broken legs so you can get a breath just to live a little bit longer because that's what humans do. At the end, we strive to live just that little bit longer, that little bit of hope. And what's so astounding about this is these religious men hate the Romans. They hate how they approach things. They hate how they do things. Yet they begged Rome to crucify Jesus, not just kill him because they thought he was claiming to be God. I can at least wrap my mind around that. He's claiming to be God. They don't believe it. He should be stoned to death. No, they wanted him to be crucified. They chanted to be crucified. And at the moment, they could have shown just a little bit of mercy and said, hey, can you kill these prisoners? Can you finish it off so we can move on for the Sabbath? They asked their legs to be broken like a Roman would. Cruel. It's just, these are religious men. They're supposed to be the examples of grace and mercy. Yes, truth. Yes, holding up biblical truth. But they ask their legs to be broken so they'll suffocate. Commentary I read said that more than likely they asked for Jesus' legs to be broken instead of just having him and the other prisoners just killed because it would have been another sign to the people watching that Jesus was accursed by God. That he was abandoned it was another form of shame they could pile on top of him after all the shame he'd already been through. So Pilate gives permission to the soldiers to break their legs. And so he breaks the legs of the other prisoners as we read, and then he comes to Jesus and he's already dead. He already gave up his spirit. So they don't break his legs. And sure, instead, they make sure he's dead by they piercing his side, which meant they pierced up into his ribs, probably up into his heart. That's what they were trying to accomplish, to pierce up into his heart, to ensure that he was dead. And the result was blood and water came pouring out. So as we've already said, when people hang from the cross, often their lungs would fill with fluid. Also, often, they've done studies on this, their, their pericardial sac around their heart would also fill with blood and fluid. So more than likely, they pierced the pericardial sac, and then blood and fluid just came rushing out, showing that they actually did pierce his heart. 
This is important because there was a rumor then, it's even in Scripture, that Jesus didn't really die. Now, keep in mind, remember, John wrote this when he's probably around 90, right? So he wrote this way later in his life after a lot of stuff had happened. The other Gospels were probably written 30 years, 40 years before. So there's this huge gap of Christianity spreading. But what also spreads when things like Christianity spreads? Rumors. Conspiracy theories. I know like, like conspiracy theories, that's not really that big of a deal. You guys don't ever follow conspiracy. Anyway, conspiracy theories become a big deal, right? And so there was a theory, there's a conspiracy theory that, listen, still, people still talk about today. People still try to claim this about the resurrection today. I saw it on the History Channel once. Don't watch History Channel stuff about the resurrection, please. <laughs> please don't watch it. Just don't even watch it, right? But it, it exists to even day. But there was, in Scripture, it talks about how people said, well, Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned. Like he was, he was mostly dead. He was almost completely dead. But then the disciples pulled him down off the cross and they revived him. And so, G, so John is trying to make a point here. He's trying to make it absolutely clear that, that Jesus was dead. On top of that, listen, this is what these executioners did. They were dealers of death. Death was their business. And that doesn't mean they were perfect. But you think these guys couldn't tell if someone hanging on the cross when this is what they do was dead, especially after they pierced him and tried to pierce him in the heart? These are soldiers. This is what they do, that he was actually dead. No, no, Jesus' legs weren't broke, broken, so they pierced him in the side, probably in the heart. This is a pretty straightforward part of the story, isn't it? Well, no, no it's not. It's not quite that straightforward. Keep reading. In verse 35, John 19, verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. If you remember the point of this book, we find it in John 20. 30, 31, we've talked about it a lot. John tells us the point of this book, basically so that you might know and believe in Jesus. That, that's the point. Yeah, I don't have, a, I don't have one for that one. <laughs> but that's the point of this book, John 20, to know and believe. But he also says that in John 20, that the disciples were witness to all of these things, that lots of people witnessed all of these things, right? And so in John 19, 35, when it says, he who saw it bore witness, his testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. John is talking about himself, there's a small debate on who this is, but like most people agree. John is just talking about himself here. He's one of the disciples. He was there. He is saying, you can listen to all the rumors and you can listen to all the conspiracy theories, but as you know, I was there. This is the thing. John is writing this in a time, the other gospel writers and John, when there are people still alive that knew that John was with Jesus. There's people still alive that knew about the cross, that knew about the resurrection, that if John was a liar or that John was claiming to be there when he wasn't, could you just say, John, you weren't there. Everybody knows you weren't there. No, everybody knows that John was there. And so he's saying, I experienced it. I know exactly what was happening because I saw it. I saw it. This is not about a false teaching or conspiracy theories. This is, not, this is not about speculating about how Jesus came back to life three days later. John is making the point here, I saw him give up his spirit. Right? I saw the executioner not break his legs. I saw the blood. I saw the water pour out his side as they pierced him in the chest. He was dead. 
But even in that, I think John is trying to tell us that him being an eyewitness and a bunch of other people being eyewitness to that is not the point. It's not the point. The point is that we can believe this. Not because he was an eyewitness. That's an important part. We can believe all, all, of, it. We can believe all of it because very specifically and quite literally, all of this fulfilled what God said the Messiah was going to go through. What God has been talking about for more than a thousand years. So I wanted to stop for a second and look at just how specific this gets. How specific this gets. So for the first prophecy, it said in, it, it said in John 19, not one of his bones will be broken, right? That there was a prophecy that was fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. This might refer to Psalm 34:20. We do have that one, right? In Psalm 34:20, it's God talking about a righteous man. God's talking about a righteous man. In reference to a righteous man, he says, a righteous man, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So Jesus being the righteous man, the perfectly righteous man, is the perfect picture of this, and so his legs weren't broken. Maybe that's what John is referencing here. Some people think that's what John's referencing here. Um, He might be, but I don't think that's what he's referencing. Or at least not the only thing he's referencing. What I think he's referencing is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time talking about Jesus as the Passover lamb as I probably normally would, because um, TJ covered this in detail in his sermon a couple weeks ago, so I encourage you to go back and listen to it, because I'm going to sum up what he's, he took half of his sermon to talk about. But here's, here's the quick summation. In Exodus 12, remember during the Exodus, God is about to set the Israelites free from their captivity in Egypt. And on that day, he begins what is called the Passover. That's what they're celebrating right now, right? It's on that day when God said, um, I'm setting you free. I'm getting you out of here. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, cook, I want you to cook a lamb. But listen, I don't want you to break one of its bones. I want you to cook it. And I want you to take its blood, the one that you didn't break any of the bones of, and I want you to put its blood over the doorpost. And, and when my wrath comes, my wrath for sin, my judgment for sin comes, when it comes to your door, if the blood of the lamb is over the door, I'll pass over your house and move on. So that's, that's what the Passover was. And that has been celebrated mostly every year since then by the Jewish people until this day. That's what they're celebrating right now. It's the biggest day of the year for the Jews. Church, what day is Jesus being crucified on? The Passover. And who is the ultimate once and for all Passover lamb sacrifice so his sins might not just cover, so God might not just pass over our current sins, but pass over all of our sins? Jesus. So I think John is strongly alluding to the fact that basically all of Scripture is being fulfilled in this moment as the true Passover lamb on the Passover, the righteous one who not one of his bones will bring, be broken, is bringing all of God's salvation and redemption all together in this moment. All of the things that God's been promising and talking about, John is saying it's all coming together right now. Not one of his bones will be broken because he is the Passover lamb. Even in Exodus, everything that we did, it's all pointing to this. And that's amazing. With that one phrasing, I think that's what John's trying to tell them because they would have known the story. It is the Passover. They, they know what's going on. And he's saying all of it comes to fruition. He is the Passover lamb and not one of his bones were broken. broken. Now, as if that wasn't amazing enough, if I've lost you on any of this, if you're tired and you're dozing off, pay attention to this part. Because it's as if God bringing a thousand years of history together on an amazing day wasn't enough, um, I think the next scripture that's being fulfilled is maybe the most incredible. 
And here's what it's centered around. The fact that Jesus was pierced. The fact that Jesus was pierced. Now, Jesus was pierced in a couple of ways, right? He was pierced in his hands and feet on the cross. And then he was pierced in the side. I want to look at the first one. Pierced in his hands and feet. Um, I want to look at one of the fulfillments of scripture that was written a long time ago. Psalm 22 about this moment when Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. Psalm 22, 16 through 18. We got that one. There it is. For dogs encompass me. A, couple, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. Dang it. I'm missing a page. The most important part. But listen, we don't need it. Probably. I can count, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now listen, we've already seen them gloat over Jesus, right? They've belittled him. They've humiliated him. That's already come to fruition. We've already talked about, like, all his garments, right? Like, how specific is that really? Like, not only, like, it was common for Roman soldiers to, when they executed someone, to take their clothing and divide it up among them. So that's amazing enough, isn't it? Like, I don't know if that was a common practice everywhere. That's what Roman soldiers did. So that's enough that they cast lots, not just that they took his clothes, that they cast lots for his clothes. That's amazing. But did you hear what they said about piercing his hands and feet? Listen, church, that prophecy was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. A thousand years. Take a second. Think about the world a thousand years ago. Do you know anything about the world in the year 1000? A thousand years ago, this prophecy was written about his hands and feet being pierced. That's amazing, but it's not the most amazing part. Do you know when crucifixion was invented? 500 years after the prophecy. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet when, they, when this prophecy was written. And so what it's saying here, it's so specific that it's saying the Messiah, the suffering servant, is going to have his hands and feet pierced from a, a, a prophecy that was written a thousand years before and 500 years before the, the, the process of this coming to fruition had even been invented. Isn't that crazy? But it just blows my mind. Someone said in our life group this week that one of the reasons that they were saved, a part of them being saved, is that someone shared not only the gospel with them, but Psalm 22. And he's like, I could never let go of Psalm 22. How is it possible that a thousand years before that was predicted, along with the casting of the, the, casting of the lots for garments, but then his hands and feet were pierced, and that didn't even get invented until 500 years later? That's crazy. That's crazy. If anyone tells you that having faith in Jesus Christ is somehow ignorant, they don't understand what Scripture actually says. I understand why people don't believe in God. I'm not saying you turn it back on them. Like, well, let me tell you. No. But listen, our faith is logical. Listen, God is bringing faith and belief and eyewitness and amazing things all into this so we can bring our logic and our heart and our spirit all together and believe in this thing and believe that it's true. It's crazy. Now, as Jesus being preached in his side, we have another prophecy that speaks to that. I think it's Zechariah 12, if I remember right, right? Good. Zechariah, <laughs> Zechariah 12. It says this in Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David, that's the line that Jesus came from, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, 
as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So on one side, you have the religious leaders that mocked him when he was pierced. But it also says there's going to be those, as we know, his mother, the other women, and John at a distance who are keeping their distance. But see, and they're mourning over him as his sides pierced. There's people there to witness it, to see him being pierced. But I think that the language here is interesting. And maybe this is me looking too deeply into it, but I don't think so. They say that we shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I think that's interesting because if you have an only child, you don't weep over them as a firstborn. Those are two different things, right? If you have multiple kids, you weep, you weep over a firstborn. A firstborn in the ancient world was a big deal, right? They're the ones who was to inherit, so that's, that's a thing. But if you, if you have an only child and you lose your only child, that's a thing. But they, they say them both here. And maybe that's just a coincidence, but um, I think it's interesting because who do we know that's an only child and also a firstborn? Jesus Christ, the only son of God, but also the firstborn of a new creation, the firstborn of a new people under a new covenant. As Roman, Romans 8 says, he's the firstborn of, of his new brothers and sisters. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the only child of God, and people were there to witness and to see as he was pierced. Listen, church, God has brought so many things together in this moment as Jesus hangs there and says, it is finished. Amazing things. Incredible things. As if Jesus coming to give his own life on purpose when he could have stopped it and even says joyfully, like, listen, joyfully giving his life on the cross so that he might set us free from all the things that we couldn't set us free from. To, ha to help us so that we could be forgiven when we could never be forgiven on our own, as if that wasn't amazing enough to see God's glorious plan that really for us, that, that we can see clearly, started back in Genesis 3 and to see it pulled all the way through Scripture, all the way and, and talked about and pro prophesied by the kings and prophets, and then to see the people waiting for it all through the Old Testament, and then see Jesus come, and, and so many people not believe him, but some believe him, and then to see it to all come together on the cross in this moment, all the prophecies coming together in one moment as the Passover lamb is sacrificed uh, on the Passover, it's just unbelievable. But in God, it is believable. Church, I want you to understand something. God has not just saved you from something. He saved you into something. He has saved you from your sin and the fear of death and the fear of hell. Yes, he saved you from that, but he's also saved you into his family. He saved you into his story of redemption. He's asked you, he's let us be a part of it so that we can know, we can see that we can trust him and we can hope in him and we can place our faith in him and know that it's well placed. Listen, the work to defeat sin is finished. And God did it in spectacular ways. He brought things together in spectacular ways so that you could know, hear me, it's not about you. And so many churches across America right now were making our faith about the people sitting in the pews, and that's a tragic thing because the people in the, in the pews aren't good enough to carry it. We're not strong enough to carry it. 
So we're telling them they're awesome and that they can do this and everything's good until they go out there. And for a while, it is awesome and it does feel good until something tragic happens or something hard happens or they fail hard or they go back to their sin or they go back to their vomit, as Ecclesiastes say, and it all comes crashing down and they realize, I'm not good enough. And then what do you have left? God did, did something for us so amazing. He made it about him. Do you see how good he is? This whole story is not about you. As I say before, the story of David and Goliath is not about how you can be David and conquer your giants. It's about God using somebody who nobody cared anything about, who everybody overlooked, who wasn't strong, who wasn't powerful, who was the last son. And he said, look, look what I can do even through him. I can conquer Goliath if you just have faith. That's the story. It is God's story. All of it brought through redemption for his glory because his glory is what you need. Not focusing on yourself and what you should be and your sin. Again, yes, we have to take our sin seriously. Yes, we have to deal with all of those things and confess and repent. But we need to, in the end, make it about Jesus. Make it about God who knew that you couldn't bear the weight of all of it. So he said, give it to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is what he's talking about. The story is about God. And thank goodness it's about God and what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. All of this coming together so that you can focus on the thing that will actually set you free. The work needed to pay your debt is accomplished. The fear of death has been conquered. Your, your sin, it is finished. There is no more guilt. There is no more wrath. When you turn to Jesus Christ, it is finished. What would happen if you actually walked in that truth? What would happen if you actually lived in that hope? You lived in that power daily that I can set it down, confess it, repent, take your shame seriously, but lay your shame at the cross and then move forward because the work has been done because it is finished. What hope, what joy, what freedom comes from the truth in the gospel, the truth that it is finished. I pray that we all can move forward, that we can all move forward in that truth and not just move forward. Talk about not making it about you, making it about God and his glory because that's where your joy is found. What if not only we could move forward in that truth, but then share that truth with others? like the person in my life group that had someone share the gospel with him and point him to Psalm 22 and, and say, look what God has done a thousand years before and 500 years after that, and then brought it all together so that you could be forgiven and so that I could be forgiven. What if you were willing to share that story with someone like the person in my life group and somebody else could find the hope in Jesus Christ? I'll close this week with a passage from John chapter 1. Something we've already talked about, something that John's already covered. I think it really comes alive for us now. It's in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. John chapter 1, 14 and 16, it says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I pray, church, that we could walk in his fullness, not ours, his fullness, and accept his grace upon grace. Let's pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you care so much for us. You care so much for us that, that you're just God and we should just obey, yet you sent your son, yet you sent your prophets, yet you sent your truth ahead of time so that when the day actually came and Jesus is hung there to pay for our sin and cries out, it is finished, we could actually see your faithfulness over a thousand years or more, bring it all together at just the right moment so that we might see and we might know and we might believe. What an amazing God you are. God, I pray today that you would, that you would help us. God, I know there's people in this room that are just carrying the burden of sin. They're carrying the burden of apathy. They're carrying the burden of busy, whatever it might be, God, that you would help them to lay that down. Lay it down at your cross and move forward to believe the truth, to not trust how they feel, but trust what you've actually done, to believe what you've done and that you would help them to feel the joy of that, that they can lay their burdens down and move forward in grace upon grace. For those of us, God, that are in the room today, and, and God, we're feeling that grace, and we're walking in that truth. God, I praise you for that. I'm rejoicing over that. I pray that you would give us, all of us that are feeling that way today, God, a, a, a healthy, joyful conviction to go out and tell other people about this hope that we have. There are lost people all around us. There are lost people across the street that need to know who you are. Give us a desire to tell them, to celebrate with them. But the crazy things that you have done, God, to show us who you are and what you've done. And then God, help us to just be a church that loves each other well, that remembers we all are here because we desperately needed this gospel. And so whether we're struggling today or we're doing awesome today, we are here because of your grace. Help, it to, God, help that to give us hearts that are patient and kind and full of mercy and full of grace, not full of judgment, not full of looking down on others, but full of a, a compassionate heart that wants to see other people grow and to know you more. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this family. I thank you that we get to be here gathered today. I'll pray, I pray you do more in us and through us than we can even pray for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.